Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 18th, 2015. This is episode 1576 of the Survival Podcast. And given that it's a Monday, this is a feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. You make sure you put TSPC in the subject line. You ask your question or make your point in one or two sentences. Give me a link if there is a link to anything, and then give me your details after that. That's the format to be most likely to get included on this show. I have a lot of stuff for you today, stuff that I can cover pretty quickly so we can move around and cover a lot of different subjects today. Uh, sometimes I go real in-depth to three or four subjects, and sometimes I'm going to do what I do today, which is kind of a shotgun attack on a whole bunch of different varied things. Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear... Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains, That's why they call them SawTac, and when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from SawTac, get into your MSB account, click on benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, just a real quick announcement to let you know there may be some interruptions to the schedule of the show in the next three to four weeks. We've got a lot of stuff going on. I've got the Elijah Spring thing uh, the week of June the 11th. Now, that's almost a month out yet, so that's, that's at the tail end of it, and it doesn't really fall into the other thing I'm about to tell you about. Uh, but starting this week, we have ongoing construction in our home. 
uh, for almost a month for everything to be done. We are completely and totally remodeling our kitchen. We've been saving up to do this since we moved in because our house was built in uh, 1979. And if you know anything about interest rates and, and, the, and the history of them, if you were building a house in 1979, you, uh, you took every shortcut you could, especially in things like the kitchen. And our kitchen is god-awful, and remodel of a kitchen can be pretty expensive. So we've looked at a bunch of different ways to do it. We've saved up money, and we're finally, we've committed, we're doing it. We've got a great great guy doing custom cabinets, a great guy doing the granite, a whole bunch of other things going on, but there's going to be a lot of banging and sawing and smashing and cracking and things like that. And the, the kitchen is just one, you know, separated by a small bathroom from my office. And it's going to be difficult to maintain the production schedule. So I just wanted you guys to be prepared for that. I guess the good news is, boy, it's going to be a lot better lighting in there and a lot better flow. And there'll probably be a lot more cooking with Jack videos coming after that. This is done. So just wanted to give you a heads up on that. I don't like disruptions to the flow of the show at all. And I know some of you are going to be like, do a throwback, get in the car, drive around. It, it, the, the way Where we're at with things now is a little different than it was, you know, eight years ago almost when I climbed in the car for the first time. So it, it's not as practical as it might seem. I uh, appreciate the, the, the sentiment, and who knows, maybe something like that will happen at some point. But, but right now I've kind of got things into a different groove, a uh, much higher level show, and I want to keep it that way if I can for you. Anyway, before uh, we, we get into your feedback, the other thing I want to do is remind you guys about the uh, Member Support Brigade. If you do love the work that I do and you want it to be around forever, consider becoming a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. You'll get a lot of great benefits, including almost $200 worth of free ebooks the day you sign up, and you'll get discounts to over 60 uh, supporting vendors now. I'm working on getting you some more stuff on a discount as well for that. These are permanent discounts, or at least I require a one-year commitment for people to become part of the Members Brigade. So these are not like sales and opportunities. This is stuff that's there anytime you want to buy it. The discounts are there for you. I work hard to make the uh, the MSB a win-win-win. You guys get the discounts. The supporting vendors get business they wouldn't have otherwise, and I get to keep doing what I do. Your support's how that happens. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you do qualify for a discount. Just send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences about your service. I'll get the discount code back to you. Do that before, not after you join. I can't go back and, and change your account. You got to do that before you join if you want the discount. Everybody else, 50 bucks a year, 18.3 cents an episode, and you can rock on as a member of my support brigade. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Uh, 1576 is the year. I have the Sack of Antwerp and Sutton's Law, the Autobiography, the Love of Self and a Promotional Tool, and the Shakespearean era begins with the first PBS. And the interesting thing is Shakespeare's still a boy at this point, so he hasn't written anything yet. But I'm going to read the sack of Antwerp and Sutton's Law. Antwerp is the financial capital of Europe, at least it was until now. Don Juan, the half-brother of the King of Spain, has been made governor of the Netherlands after his victory over the Ottomans at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. For your information, he saved all of Western Europe from Ottoman rule in a single day. I would have made him king of Candyland if that's what he wanted. What he got was another challenge. Unfortunately, the king of Spain went through yet another currency collapse last year. With no credible money to pay the troops, the Spanish troops decided to take their money out of the hide of the locals. In this case, Antwerp. Why? That's where the money is. This isn't about religion. This is about the money. 
Thousands will die as the city burns. In its place, Amsterdam and London will fill the vacuum as financial centers. My take by Alex Shrugged. Willie Sutton was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for robbing for his bank robbing expertise. It is an urban myth that when he was asked why he robbed banks, he replied, because that's where the money is. But the myth was turned into a principle called Sutton's Law, which is first check for the obvious. That applies to history. Although the people of the 1500s were struggling with a few unique problems, there are general principles that apply. You must not only watch out for your enemies, but you also must watch out for your friends, or watch the watchers. And remember the Latin proverb, que bono, who benefits. In other words, follow the money. More information, uh, optional information from Alex Strug here. When Willie Sutton was released from prison, he went straight, straight to the bank. He made a commercial for the new credit card. The tagline was, they call it the face card. Now when I say I'm Willie Sutton, people believe me. So I guess the bank robber got one more payday. Um, I'd like to point something out here that I think is really important, that we understand who we work with and who we partner with in life. Um, so you must not only watch out for your enemies, but you must also watch out for your friends. Uh, one thing that life has taught me over the years is the greatest harm that can be done to you can be done to you by those you trust. Your enemies are known, and their tactics are known, and the fact that there's two sides are known. But the person that you trust with your six, that's your six o'clock for you non-military types, can easily stab you or shoot you in the back. And I've seen that happen over the years um, in various various ways. And I think it behooves us to always make sure that, not that we don't trust or that we only trust but verify, because in many instances, the the friendships are based on something real that then changes, but... What we do when we actually put somebody into a position of trust is we we make sure that if they do turn, that our response is swift and effective. Uh, I've seen people who trusted that things would be okay and allowed such attacks to to go unchallenged or to just put it to the side, and it's it's always done them more harm than if they had immediately faced the reality. So I think one of the things we have to be really careful of is not losing the trust, and at the same time, not over-trusting that everything will be okay when the trust has been violated. That's my take by Jack Spierko. With that, I want to get into the main topic of today's show, and I'm going to play something for you right off the back that maybe I shouldn't give you on a Monday, because some of you may be ready to have an aneurysm by the time you're done hearing it. Um, but, but hold on, because it gets worse, because it's not really about the subject that I'm going to put on, Okay. It's about parenting in general. This is from uh, a podcast called This American Life, one of the top podcasts that I know of in the world, and it's called Stuck in the Middle. Here's the, here's the, uh, the synopsis on it. Rachel has two kids. Elias, age seven, is a vegetarian. Theo, age five, is not. But Elias wants Theo and everyone else in the house to be vegetarian, too. So Rachel and her husband are in the middle of negotiating the desires of two very strong-willed kids. It's worse than even that, because when you hear this, you're going to hear that, well, this is not just limited to his house or even his relations' house. It's also affecting people all over the place. And I'm going to come back and tell you why this really isn't even about vegetarianism or meat and how it's shown us that America's parents have lost their minds 
here you go. Strap in. Just think calm thoughts and lower your blood pressure before you listen to this nonsense. I'll be right back. Elias stopped eating meat when he was three or four. His mom can't remember. It's been so long. He's seven now. And he doesn't think that anybody else should eat meat either. And he freaks out. He cried and pleaded at his grandmother's at New Year's when he heard that she might cook brisket until she offered not to. There was the time that he got so upset in a restaurant smelling the meat cooking in the kitchen and seeing all the people around them eat their meals that he had to go sit up front by the door. And it kills him especially to think that his little brother might still be eating animals. His brother Theo just turned five and emphatically is not a vegetarian. What a surprise, two brothers. Their mom, uh, Rachel, says that Theo is not asking to eat meat in front of Elias. He's not asking to eat it all that often. He wants to eat meat sometimes, and I think he feels it's not fair that Elias, you know, I think he calls him the god of food, and that Elias doesn't have the right to be the god of food and tell Theo what to do. It causes a lot of conflict, and I think there are conversations almost every single day around this. She recorded one of those conversations for us when she was taking Theo, the meat eater, to a party there was going to be food at the party, and his brother was going to be there, the god of food. What would Theo eat? So, Theo, we're going to this potluck. What do you What do you think is going to be there? Well, I hope there's meat, and if you get if you give me meat, just let me eat it. So, what do you think would happen if you ate meat at the potluck? Well, we would Elias would fight. You and Elias would fight. Yeah, well, that would be bad, but I don't know what's going to happen. Well, do you think it's this is tonight is a night for Elias's class? Do you think you could not eat meat tonight so he doesn't have to have a freak out in front of all of his friends? What do you think? No, I want to eat some because because he always says don't eat any meat for the rest of your life. I know. I think things will change when he gets older, but I just want you to think about whether or not you think it's worth it for him to scream and yell at school tonight with all of his friends. Okay, think about that. Okay, deal. Well, when he's not looking, I'll eat some. When he's not looking? Yeah. Hmm. Do you think this gives Elias too much power over Theo? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a concern. And um, at some point, probably a year into his vegetarianism, he asked that we wouldn't be eating meat either and that, that the house wouldn't have any meat. And um, that was something that my husband and I had to, you know, take a step back and think about it. And, and, you know, people would say to us, you know, how could you have your seven-year-old making decisions about how you're going to be running your family? Um, and um, I guess our response has always been, um, you have to you have to hear how our child talks about meat and how it feels to him when he sees us eat meat and other people around him and his close family eating meat. It's such a painful experience for him. Now, the thing is, if you actually listen to the podcast, like the very next thing that I didn't include is the host coming on and saying, I know you want to judge her because this is a national pastime, and I felt the same way until I heard Elias and what it's like to deal with him, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, let me explain this to you. This is how parents are parenting, and this is a problem. I want you to just take the issue at hand. Vegetarian versus eating meat, and just put it on the shelf and go, isn't that nice? And realize that's not the issue here. 
That's not the issue here. Here's, here's the multiples of the issue. Number one, we have a seven-year-old child that's being conditioned to think that it's acceptable for him to impose his will on other people because it's what he wants, and his parents are doing absolutely nothing to stop that whatsoever and have actually encouraged this behavior and have taught this little kid to be a freaking tyrant. Again, nothing to do with vegetarianism. Parents are doing this all over America today. It's a big part of why we have 20- and 30-year-old children today that don't know jack shit about reality and get offended so easily and can't get anything done, and they're all effed up in the head. Okay? That's why we have that. That's why they can't accept failure. That's why they can't adapt. That's why they have no idea what the real world is really like because of this type of parenting. This is not about the pea brain lady you're listening to here. This is about millions of pea brains raising pea brain children with this tactic. Now here, this is also to prove to you that the average pea brain parent doesn't have to be a pea brain parent. Do you hear the conversation with the four-year-old? Why didn't you have that conversation with the seven-year-old when the seven-year-old was four and on the path to becoming a tyrant like this? This lady's having a conversation with the four-year-old, putting the burden of maturity on the four-year-old versus the seven-year-old who wants to dominate others' lives and throw a fit when he doesn't get his way. This is American parenting today. This is a perfect example to it. The only thing that makes it like sensationalist is that it's about, again, vegetarianism. It's moronic for you to think that that is what this is really about if you want to think about it that way. It's hard not to, but if you actually look at it and you realize that the total of the pattern here, this has nothing to do with eating meat. This has to do with the primary problem in America today when it comes to raising children. We are teaching children that they can get what they want by acting out and throwing a fit, that it is acceptable for them to impose their will on others, and that it's somebody else's responsibility if you're the person that makes the biggest fit or complains the most or with the biggest problem, if you want to call it that. And I'll also tell you this. You can learn a little bit about parenting from people like the dog whisperer, right? What the dog whisperer says, what's his name, Caesar, right? He says, I do not train dogs. I train people. That there's no such thing as a bad dog. That the person's behavior is manifest in the dog. So when I go in into a place, he says, when I go into a place and they have a dog with a problem behavior, it's always the people that created the problem behavior in the dog. Now, I'm not saying that children are as simple to train as dogs. Nor should that be the, the overall approach, but we can learn again from the pattern. This child only screams and cries and throws a fit because it worked. The fact that it ever worked is why the problem exists. And now, yes, fixing the problem is a lot more difficult than a lot of us would like to believe that it is now. Because we have a child who has come to expect that the behavior of throwing a fit and screaming and crying and begging and pleading and doing all this other bullshit that seven-year-olds do works for this issue. And he's been re it's been so long she can't remember. It was here three or four and now he's seven. So you can't remember three or four years? You can't remember? Well I can remember when this type of shit never happened. Ever. That no child behaved this way at all, period, in America. Do you know why? Because parents didn't tolerate it. And it never worked. And and if you if you look around, if you're my age or older And you look around at these kids that are 20 and 25 years old, and you think they shouldn't be kids at 20 to 25. 
They should be men and women at 20 to 25 years of age. And you're wondering what the hell's gone wrong. In a lot of cases, we did it. We did it with this behavior of saying it's acceptable for you to get what you want by demanding it. It's acceptable to get what you'd want by being uh, throwing a fit. It's acceptable for you to get it by holding your breath or whatever means necessary to get what you want. Instead of teaching children how to negotiate, how to actually get what they want, and also how to respect boundaries and respect the freedom of others to make choices just like they've made, no, we're going to capitulate. As soon as this behavior started, it needed to be immediately cut off, immediately, And also it needed to be explained like this. And see, you do see, see if she's having a very high-level conversation with a four-year-old, have that conversation with a seven-year-old, or again, the four-year-old before it becomes a seven-year-old. And that conversation would go something like this. You want to be free to eat the way you want, right? Okay, for you to be able to make that choice, you have to let other people be free to make the choices they want. Because if you can tell somebody else how to eat, then somebody else can tell you how to eat and what to eat. And in some cases, by the way, I'm your mom and you're going to eat what I tell you to or you're going to go hungry. Now, if you want to accommodate a child's conscious choice to be a vegetarian, that's fine. I understand why somebody would want to do that. But you also have a point where it's like, hey, you know, you're eating your dinner or you're not getting dessert and you're going to bed hungry. That also used to be a method of parenting. Remember that? Right? Then go to bed. Then you're done. My method for this well, didn't have nothing to do with me, but when my son would like refuse to eat dinner or, or something like this to do with food, I called it the patented top of the refrigerator method. I would just take the plate of food and sit it up on top of the refrigerator and go, when you're hungry, you're going to eat that. But what if it's cold? I'll throw it in the microwave for you. What if it doesn't taste good? Well, then maybe you should eat it now. And we're done talking about it. Well, I'm gonna, and then, but, 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 but what, but what, but what? There's no more what's. I'm going to go on about my life. When you want it, let me know. I'll get it down for you. This is putting the problem into the hands of the individual with the problem and making them deal with it. If you wonder why I put this on the survival podcast, <laughs> guys, our nation is in a rapid tailspin of decline. And it is this mentality of allowing children to dominate the will of adults, to dominate the will of their, their siblings, and to simply demand what they want to the point where if they make a big enough scene, you'll capitulate to it, that's causing all sorts of problems that we're going to be dealing with for 50 years now. And as hard as it is to correct this problem when the kid's seven versus four, you better correct it now. You better correct it now. This is the kind of kid you end up picking up from juvie at 12 to 13. If you're lucky, it takes that long. Because the message that you can make others do what you want is the exact opposite of a message that keeps children out of juvenile hall. It's the exact opposite. Anyway, with that, let's go take another one. A uh, totally different thing to kind of change the mood up here about a bit. It says, hey, Jack, I hear you speak about autumn olive all the time. I want to add them to my backyard, but I'm having a hard time finding them here in Ohio. Do you have a resource where I could get them? Looked online, and people are either sold out or want $16 or more a plant. I think that's a little high for what is considered an invasive species. Any help on where to get these would be great. Thanks, Adam. Hmm. So a plant that you can't find anywhere else that everybody's sold out on is too expensive when somebody wants 16 bucks for it. Really think about that. Sometimes the way we ask a question, if we'll just ask the question back to ourselves, we'll answer the question. So what that means is the plant's in demand. 
It's hard to find this time of year. And the people that have it are asking a price that, that kind of is in line with that. Now, here's the truth. It doesn't have to be that expensive. It really doesn't. What you're probably finding mostly right now when you find autumn olives are what are known as named varieties and proved varieties. So these are not your general everyday autumn olives that are growing out in the woods. They're things like garnet and amber and Portuguese superhero uh, and other varieties like that that are improved. So they have a higher fruit quality, a higher fruit production, a higher fruit value. So they're being sold as what they are, improved versions of a wild plant. Just as you would spend more money to purchase those than the wild version, if you go out and buy pecan seedlings grown from seeds, they have one price. If you buy a grafted pecan of a known variety, uh, it has a higher price. And you can just keep going with that. You can get apple seedlings for very, very cheap. A Malus Fusca, which is just basically any plain old apple seed that they can find and they put it in the ground and for uh, forestry purposes. Or crab apple, native crab apple seedlings or things like that you can get for dirt cheap. But if you want, you know, a good quality, uh, grafted yellow Newton Pippin, you're gonna pay 30 bucks for it. That's just how it works. Now, here's what's compounding the situation. Number one, a lot of people don't sell them anymore because government's gone off and said they're an invasive species because government doesn't know what it's talking about. So what, what happened is the government, and their, all their uh, brilliance, planted shit tons of these things along highway easements to prevent erosion. They did a very good job of that and managed to grow other places. So the government went, oh my God, this grew someplace we didn't plant it? It's an invasive species. We, I can't have it anymore. So there are a lot of nurseries that don't carry it, uh, not because there's any law that says they can't, but because the government frowns upon it and maybe their nursery inspector doesn't want it there or, or what have you. Uh, it's not quite to the level of like a, a noxious weed that's permitted from propagation. It's like right at the edge of where the government would, might say that. Okay, well, that's just stupid because the damn stuff grows everywhere already. You can't introduce an invasive species that already exists, all right? Because it's already here. And so it's a great plant. It really is. Now, if you want to get it cheap, I got uh, like a hundred of them for like less than a buck a piece. And I got them from a company called Coldstream Farm. And you won't even find it listed on their website right now because they are, in fact, sold out for the year. I don't believe Lawyer's Nursery carries them. And those are the two places that generally carry large volumes of inexpensive plants. So they're just, they're just not available this time of year. The orders have been taken, the plants have been shipped, and therefore, if you still want them, it's going to cost you more. I did some looking around where I usually get them, and the only ones I could find, they do have ambers available from Burnt Ridge Nursery, and they're 15 bucks a plant for a three to four foot plant. Uh, I bought some amber, some garnet, and, and some rubies from Burnt Ridge last year, uh, and both the ambers, all, all three of them have done very well for me, and they've grown faster than the seedling varieties as well, uh, so that may be worth getting, but that's like, you know, you're getting in almost June now, that's just what's left. Rain Tree does have some Portuguese superhero. I've heard good things about that improved variety of autumn olive, but I've never grown it. So I, I can't tell you whether or not it is going to be a good value for you. Uh, but I would imagine it would do as well as any other of the improved varieties. And they're $19.50 a plant. And again, it's a, it's a matter of, you know, what's available this late in the year. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of things you can't get this time of year or whatever's left is the most expensive stuff that other people didn't buy. 
Now, those were the only two known places that I could find um, anything for you. It's still available this year. I, I checked around. I found another website, and I just ordered from them myself before I made the mistake of putting it out on the air before ordering myself because there's some things I want to try, but I don't know anything about these people. So uh, looking at their website, I thought they were trustworthy enough to order from, but you know, we'll see when the plants come in. Uh, but they have several of the varieties I've mentioned, all out of stock mostly, by the way, right now. But they also have a variety I've never heard of before called Charlie's Golden. They have a variety called Delightful. And uh, they have a variety called Punchbowl. And all of those still have some available. I just ordered two of each of those. There's also a variety named Jewel uh, that I would be happy to get my hands on, except they're sold out of those. So you can see how I look at this. These are unique varieties that I want to put as much diversity into my uh, production as possible and get as many different varieties as possible to work with. So, you know, $12.50 for a plant for Punchbowl or uh, what's one of the other ones I just mentioned that I ordered. Delightful is $12.50. Charlie's Golden, $12.50 a plant. You know, I don't mind paying 25 bucks for two plants I've never heard of or seen or touched before and, and to see what they're going to do for me and are they going to be valuable because, you know, while these things have names, they're not patented. I don't know of any patented autumn olives. So I might not be able to sell them as Charlie's Golden, but I could sell them as Jack's Golden or Nine Mile Farm Golden or whatever. And I could certainly reproduce them with a misting system. I can make hundreds of them. So I, I think that, that it makes sense to have this diversity and then to, over time, find out what the best variety for my area is for the quality of production. So there's there's two different ways to look at these as a, as a plant. One is, hey, this is a high-quality producing uh, fruit-producing plant. And the other is, it's just a cheap uh, support species that has a fruit byproduct. And if that's what you want, then you just have to get your orders in, like really in the fall. Uh, and again, uh, Coldstream, I think, is going to be your best bet uh, to do that. Burnt Ridge does sell seedling autumn olives, and they are a lot more affordable than name varieties, but they're nowhere near you know, that dollar, dollar fifty a plant type of, of threshold. It's getting harder and harder to find autumn olive uh, uh, for that use. Uh, there's probably an opportunity for somebody that wants to produce them. And I bet a lot of these uh, improved varieties will produce some pretty interesting things from seed as well. I'm just saying. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, by the way, I'm going to be hit before I go on, I'm going to be hitting up these people at Rolling River after I get my shipment in uh, to uh, to try to get you guys a discount. They have some pretty unique-looking stuff, assuming they passed you know, the quality muster. So if you do happen to decide to pick some of these up, there's a notes section in the order. Just mention you heard them on the Survival Podcast. That'll prime the pump for me. And to avoid frustration, especially if you're an enlightened individual that believes that Internet Explorer is all that is evil, and you use Firefox. When you place your order from these people, they have like one of those CAPTCHA things where you have to enter a number code uh, to make sure a bot is not not ordering stuff. Which I think you know, really, there's places where you don't. People running websites, you don't need a CAPTCHA when somebody's entering a credit card number. You really don't. But it's weird. It kind of throws it funky off to the the bottom right, and you might not see it. So you keep getting this message saying invalid information, so look for that if you order from these guys. And again, 
prime the pump for me, guys. Help me help you. When I mention somebody and you order from them, let them know that, uh, that I'm the reason you ordered, and that'll make it a little bit easier for me to negotiate those follow-up discounts. Uh, this next one is be brief, but I do want to cover it because I think a lot of people hear it and go, yeah, I should do that, but I just I got all these other really cool prepping things I need to be doing for my prepping and just overlook this one because it's so, so, so useful. This comes from Kelly. Kelly says, I just wanted to take a second to say thank you. I heard you talk about using an inverter for backup power, so I went out and got one this year, and it came handy this in handy this weekend when I lost power for about a day. Nothing crazy, but I was able to run my refrigerators and charge phones off my car. I could have lost a lot of meat and perishable food. We are incubating chickens and turkeys, so I was able to keep those going. The inverter paid for itself in one use. Thanks again, Kelly and Azel. So, Azel, you are like right up the road for me, Kelly. We need to talk sometime and see what's going on because uh, you, you can't be more than 10 minutes away from me if you're an Azel. Anyway, um, I think that is really uh, just kind of a testimony to the value that Stephen Harris has, has brought to the Survival Podcast right there. Um, I've been talking about using inverters for various backup power system stuff since the first day of the Survival Podcast. It's always been in my you know kit of recommended gear. But Steve kind of really took it to a new level, talking about how to parcel out your power, how run your refrigerator for a couple hours, then you know then go do something else with the power while it's available. And I mean, when you think about the fact that you can get a damn decent 800 watt inverter for about 50 bucks. And that it takes that $30,000 to $40,000 generator sitting in your driveway and actually makes it a generator. Man, that's it's so valuable. It's so simple. And the thing is, some of you might have a $30,000 generator in your driveway. And some of you might have a $2,500 hoopty. I'm talking about your car, by the way, or your truck. But regardless of what it is, as long as it'll sit there and idle, it'll run a, 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 an inverter. There's some important things to know about running an inverter for backup power, though. Uh, like, if you plug that little thing into your cigarette lighter with it, you're going to get about 120 watts, 125 watts before pop, you're going to blow a fuse. It's not that the inverter won't try to give you what you asked for when you try to ask for 400 watts. It's that when it does, it's going to pop the fuse that runs to the, the cigarette lighter because you only pull about 120, 125 watts across there. So you need to clamp it onto your battery. There's a lot of other really important stuff if you want to use inverter and inverter or inverters, multiple inverters, uh, to power, power some backup stuff in your home. And you can learn all about them. If you go to solar1234.com and scroll down just a little bit, you'll see a, a, in, you know, highlighted in yellow highlighter how to power your house from your car with an inverter. Uh, you can listen to the episode of Survival Podcast where Steve talks all about this. And uh, it, it really, I think this that one that one show, I think may have helped more people than any other single show on TSP for people to actually get through blackouts. I mean, it, there's been so many emails that have come into me because I had a fifty dollar inverter. My food is not ruined. And remember, we don't just plug the refrigerator in and the freezer in and just leave it there. But we can run that thing for a couple hours and then six hours without it and then a couple hours with it. And we can go a long time, a long time. And a car will give you a surprising amount of idle time uh, on a full tank of fuel and make sure you're storing fuel. And, you know, I, this is not, this is all you need. Don't go get a generator. My generator has been the best investment I've ever made for my preps. It does so much more than an inverter does alone. But a good generator, $1,000, $2,000, depending on what you're buying, 
an inverter, 50 bucks on Amazon. It'll be in, if you're a Prime member, two days from now you'll have it. Play with it, learn to use it, get some extension cords, get some uh, some adapter plugs, and uh, learn how to use this tool. It, it's so valuable, and it, it can do so much for you during these brownouts and blackouts. Another little tip I want to add, and I actually had asked Steve about this, and he said, you're right, just buy any old one of them. Uh, those of you that have uh, Dish Network uh, or anything like satellite TV or uh, cable boxes that have like a boot time, like when the, when the power goes off, it takes like, oh, I don't know, five minutes for your cable box to come back on. Get yourself a simple low-cost UPS and plug your TV and your cable box and, and your DVD player and all that stuff into your UPS. And, and remember, that's not to run it for an hour, right? But when the power goes and comes back on, right? You don't sit there and look at it for five minutes going, booting, booting, or your, your satellite system's trying to find signal. And it'll also provide additional level of surge protection uh, for your expensive things like your cable box and your TV set and things like that. Because information can be critical during the storm season. That's one way to help preserve that. So uh, definitely consider getting yourself just basic, round, you know, everyday UPS with enough enough wattage. Just look at the wattage of your of your system, uh, anything you're trying to run with it, and if it'll run it for five minutes, that's what a UPS is for. Now I don't mind having a little bit longer time. The UPS I actually have my computer system, my cable modem, and everything hooked up to. It'll run my entire computer system for about an hour. It's pretty pretty high end UPS. Uh, I have no intention to use it that long, but it didn't cost that much more than one that would do it for half an hour. So if you want to put a little bit of lo uh, le you know longer uh, runtime on it, that's fine. Just don't try to don't try to run systems with UPSs. They're they're designed to allow for controlled shutdowns or implementation of longer term power solutions. But what they really help you with is that that two second to two minute brownout. That's and just not losing whatever you know, whether it's a computer you're working on or you know you're watching a report about storms that are on the way to your area. They're telling you to you know take safety precautions and stuff like that. And the power goes blip blip, and then you're waiting ten minutes to find out what the hell is going on. Weather radios and all are great, but to me there's no there's no substitute for having that direct feedback, especially during storm season. So. Uh, just a little addition there. And remember, uh, solar1234.com to get the full show on using an inverter for your, your backup power needs. Well, this next one comes from, who is it, Clinton. Clinton says, I'm debating whether it's a good idea for us, the listeners and yourself, to come up with some type of phrase to use on the Internet to help identify ourselves to other listeners. It seems this would facilitate community growth in ways that may not otherwise happen. Maybe perhaps just putting TSPC at the end of a post. To an extent, I recognize I'm making this too complicated and I should just go meet people. But the background is I've been watching Craigslist for plants and see a number of people selling plants and such. Most of the time, they are too far away. But I might be convinced otherwise if I knew they were of a like mind. If they listen to you, I know it's not 100% true. I would like to think they are, they are not like the guy I met uh, that let me hunt on his property, spent a good bit of the time threatening me, describing his security and how his dogs would be, bite me, telling me uh, of the contrails from the jet overhead and was going to make me sick and more. I never went back. That guy was creepy. I might also rule out the eco-hippies that contemplate their navels. Um, <laughs> example post from Craigslist I won't provide. Anyway, um, I don't know. Here's my thing. I've always found that when anybody with a brand tries to force something like that into the market, 
uh, rather than let it occur organically, it generally doesn't go very well. It's like that would be a tremendous benefit to me. If everybody out there started leaving a little tea, a, you know, survival podcast breadcrumb when they did certain posts or certain advertisements or stuff that would be very innocuous, um, but people might start trying to figure out what it means. That, that would be a huge benefit to me. I, I don't know if it's a big benefit to the audience or not, but I know it would help me. So if I start saying, like, go do this, well, I don't know that it really, it really does much. But if you wanted to use TSPC and you wanted to help me, how about tspc.co? .co, not com, tspc.co, people might actually type that in and see what we're all about. Um, and yet it's still like something that could just be appended to the end of things that's just kind of out there, and if you saw it, you would know. But again, I don't want to force that. The reason I bring that up, though, is I got another email that I don't have queued for the show, but I really enjoyed receiving it. It just said we really that the person said, I really appreciate that you have that domain. Please, please don't let it, you know, fall to the side because it's a shortcut domain that he uses in his phone all the time to get to the site. And I just wanted to kind of mention that that is available. TSPC.co. Uh, I don't have a site filter. It just flips you right over to thesurvivalpodcast.com, which is an awful long domain. So it's a shortcut domain. And if you wanted to use it for something like this, I think it would be kind of cool and it might make people check it out. And that might be one more way to spread the message. But again, I want things like that to be as organic as possible. I've tried not to to push the direction of this community. I've tried to set up these sub-niches and sub-communities and get the hell out of the way and let you guys run them. That's why I'm not on Zello or the forum all the time. I, I, I set those things up and I let this community run them the way they see fit. I, I think that's something that most people won't do with a brand. Most companies I used to work with when I was a consultant in marketing wanted to completely control their brand, but yet they wanted things to be viral. Yeah, those two things don't go together. And I think that the smartest thing I've ever done with TSPC uh, is while I have done a, a really good job, I think, of protecting what I speak for when I speak for the Survival Podcast, I have gotten out of the way of the various projects and, and niches and things, and some of them have succeeded and some have failed, but I've never tried to dominate them. I've always tried to let them become whatever they can become on their own, let them grow up like, I don't know, kids that can take responsibility for themselves, you know, like don't need constant supervision, and I think that's been a good idea. But, you know, if I saw it, I'd know what it meant. And most other TSPC listeners probably would again. And again, that, that short domain is tspc.co.com. Uh, I actually was using it at one time. I'll tell you a little quick story. So the way I got the tspc.co domain was I started using bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y for short links. And they, like, sometimes when you use bit.link, you'll see one that's like the Amazon link. Or, uh, ITS Tactical, my buddy Brian Black, he's got his own little short link. And there's all different types of these little short links, right? Where you can get domains you'd never get in a .com or a .net. So I saw .co and thought, well, uh, I could use that. And TSP I tried first, and it wasn't available. TSPC.co existed, and I set up the short links with Bitly. And what was happening is it was a new domain at the time, and a lot of people's phones and computers were adding the M, whether it was supposed to be there or not, and screwing everything up. So I said, the hell with it. The Bitly link's not that important, and I just redirected it to the main site. So there's the story behind TSPC.co. But no worries, it's on auto renewal. It's not going anywhere, and I think I have it right now renewed for like five years. 
I said these are going to be quick. This one's kind of complicated, but I'm going to give a quick answer to it anyway. He says, hi, this is from Jonathan. Hi, Jack. Active duty military. I've been in for four and a half years and have another three left to go until I'm eligible to separate. So I guess that means that's your ETS. So you're not getting anything out of that. That's just when your contract, your current contract's up. I no longer believe the Suba de Mierda uh, bull that I'm fed. Uh, Suba de Mierda means su uh, bullshit soup, basically. However, I'll have almost eight years in. I'm considering going to guard reserve or maybe becoming a cop in an area that counts federal time and retire at 40, so I won't waste that time I've put in. Your advice is greatly appreciated. Advice for people considering military service. If you choose to do it, sign up for the least amount of time possible. I almost feel with how long I've been in that I've caught the catch 20, I'm caught in a catch 22. Uh, Jonathan. Uh, I'm going to say, first of all, I agree with your advice. Um, when I joined the military, uh, I joined for two years plus all the school time, right? So, My recovery school, my mechanics course, my basic training, my airborne school, all the school that I... And it's amazing, like, if you go into an MOS that nobody wants to go into, uh, which at the time, heavy wheel vehicle mechanic, like, they consolidated that now. There's, like, three MOSs into... They consolidated into what's called 63 Whiskey because no one wanted that job. I don't really know why. I liked it better than the light wheel mechanic uh, option because bigger vehicles are actually easier to work on, in my opinion. But um, because of that, they were willing to... Like, you want this school? Okay, yeah, you want that school? Yeah. So I had almost three years uh, with schooling being almost a year. And they were willing to give you almost anything you asked for because you went to an MOS that was like 60% under strength and then you get promoted really fast if you stay in. That's another little side thing. But going to the short terms, and you'll also find a lot of times the, the, the jobs that nobody wants if they're a job you would want to do. Now, understand, if they're a job you would want to do, come with short enlistment terms because they need people to do it. Right, So I don't necessarily think you might want to be like a, uh, a garbage man for the military, so to speak. But you might find some options if you're going to join that would go that way. If you're going to do it, least time possible. And I will also throw out a little other piece of advice here. Uh, this stuff where I'm going to join the military and go to Special Forces. Please don't join the military because you want to be in Special Forces. Because... Not only is it difficult to get you know get through the the screening and all, you, you're usually looking at getting to like an E5 with a second language discipline to get into Green Berets, Ranger. You can have a little shorter path to certainly get into, especially if you set things up right from going in. But a lot of these people think they're going to go in and be a SEAL or a, a you know a, a Air Force Pararescue or whatever. It never never happens. And then the guys that, guys that think you're going to go in, you're going to do that, and that's going to be your pedigree to be a firearms instructor. You might as well just go be a firearms instructor. It sounds really good, but in the end, people take training from people that provide good training. And you can get all the, the, the training that's relevant to training civilians and law enforcement that you, that you would have as, as a SEAL or whatever by taking that training yourself on the, on the civilian law enforcement side and then providing that training to other people, and you don't have to sign away your life. So I think there's a lot of mismotivation to join the military. And I just want to kind of point some of those very upfront ones out. Now, the question, yeah, and this is the truth. The longer you're in, the more you're vested and the more you're willing to compromise to get whatever's promised as the gold watch at the end of the tunnel. You're going to have, let's call it eight years. It is tempting to say, you know what, screw it. I'll just do this for 12 more years. You know, and, and I'll get a retirement, and I'll get half of my pay for the rest of my life with that retirement. Twelve years is a lot of your life to trade away for a, a retirement. 
Uh, as to going into the guard or reservist, there's there's some value there. Now you have to do a lot more years, but you got a lot of retirement points from eight years of active duty service. So yeah, going guard or reserve, and I personally lean more for for your situation toward guard than reserve. And many times you're also eligible to go into a guard that's other than your particular branch of service. So you might be Army and still may be able to go into the Air Guard, and that might be a better deal for you. Okay, So that's another thing to consider uh, when making that transition. Law enforcement, I, there's some that do and some that don't, and that you got to figure out for yourself. But here's my, here's my advice when I pull back to, to the thousand-mile view. And get all of the confusion out of the way of it. Okay, let's say you're going to be 26 to 28 years old at the point that you, you're eligible for separation. Even 30. Um, at that point, you have somewhere in the neighborhood of, based on average life expectancy, 50 to 70 years of your life left. How many more of them do you want to spend doing something you don't want to do? You know, can you... Can you earn more for yourself doing something you'd prefer to do? Can you earn as much for yourself doing something you would prefer to do? I'm not saying that, see, and this is why I think maybe the Guard Reserve uh, pathway might have something going for it. It's a, it's a certain amount of income. It retains certain benefits. Um, you can, you know, in, unless you have a like an absolute, I'm going to go live in this place, you can kind of shop around, too. Like what? What unit would you want to be part of? You know, based on where you live, you pretty much are going to be attached to a certain place. Um, that would mean, let's say, if you decided I want to live, I don't know, in Wyoming, that you could go to Wyoming after you get out and know you have some income and some support in Wyoming just by going to the place where you would attach to a unit. So it, it's now I didn't want to do it. When I was done, I was done. And they, we have what's called individual ready reserve, which is I had you know five years of that where they can recall you, and then Somalia and all that crap started, and I started like oh, I really, and then you know the, the whole Bosnia thing, and, and nothing came of it from calling up you know in, in active reservists. But man, it was like the whole time I'm thinking I don't want anything to do with this anymore. So if that's how you feel, then you should find something else to do with your life. But you're right, it is easier. You know, I was 22 years old. It's a lot easier. 21, 22? Man, most people haven't even started their lives yet. You come out of the military 21, 22 years old, you've got that behind you. You're always going to have that. People will always value that on some level. It's easy. It's so easy to just say, you know what? I did that. I put some service in, gave something back to my nation and my community, and now I'm going to go do something for myself. 26, 28, 29, 30 years of age, eight years of your life vested, And, 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 a, and a, a decent retirement, you know, a, a, a guaranteed cash flow for the rest of your life that's more than most people will probably get from Social Security, you know, in your 30s, and then lifetime medical benefits as well, it's, 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 it's tempting. I, I understand that it's tempting, but to me, what do you want from your life should take precedence over all of that? Because if it doesn't, what you're saying is you don't believe in yourself enough to pursue your dreams. And I would rather fail pursuing my dreams than succeed while failing to pursue my dreams. 
I, I really would. That, that's what it really comes down to. So if you can see yourself happily serving in a guard unit, then that's fine. If you can see yourself happily serving in a capacity of law enforcement, and we need good people doing both of those. We really do. I know there's some people that, you know, the anarcho-libertarian view that I have, like, oh, nobody should do anything like it. Well, it is what it is. You know, I'm with, I'm with, with, with Curtis Stone. So on some level, some of your ideology has to go in your back pocket. It's great that you feel that way, but the world is what the world is. And what you do is you use your ideology in dealing with the real world. You don't ignore the real world uh, to you know, exclude the realities of the world to the entertainment of your ideology. Those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. This next one comes from Karim, and it's an interesting take. Self-driving trucks are going to hit us like a human-driven truck. The imminent need for basic income and recognition of our machine-driven future. Let me read part of this to you. Last year, I took a road trip with my partner from our home in New Orleans, Louisiana, to Orlando, Florida, and we drove uh, by town after town. We got talking about the potential effects of self-driving vehicle technology would have not only on truckers themselves, but on local economies depending on trucker salaries. Once one starts wondering about this kind of one-two punch to America's gut, one sees the prospects aren't pretty. We're facing the dissemination of entire small-town economies, a disruption the likes of which we haven't seen since the construction of the Internet highway system itself bypassed entire towns. If you think this may be a bit of hyperbole, uh, hyperbole, hyperbole, I can't say it today. I normally can say that word. If you think this might be a bunch of bullshit, let me back it up, uh, back up a bit and start with this. He has a map of the United States, and it says this map of the this, this is a map of the most common jobs in each state in 2014. Now I have not verified this. Okay, I want to say that I that this data may not be accurate. I'm, it says source from NPR. Who knows? There's always some some perception bias to a lot of these things that are built up, but. Truck driver appears in a lot of states, so many so that I'll tell you the states that it doesn't and what they are. Um, Washington is software developer. Nevada is retail clerk. Um, Colorado and Utah are uh, software developers. New Mexico is secretary. Um, and then, let's see, Arizona's customer service. Florida is primary school teacher, uh, Virginia software developer, West Virginia school teacher. Um, in New England, it gets a little hard to read what's what here, but it looks like uh, New Hampshire is uh, secretary. Uh, it looks like New York is nursing aide. And then some various other places, they're a primary school teacher, they might be Massachusetts, Connecticut looks like primary school teacher, Rhode Island looks like primary school teacher. So it looks like school teachers in the, 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 the bastion of New England. Uh, then we have primary school teacher for Alaska, cook for Hawaii, and then farmer for North and South Dakota. Everybody else says truck driver. Uh, let me read a little more of this article, and I want to talk about what their point is and what's real and what's not real here. This is a map of the most common jobs in each state of 2014. It should be clear at a glance just how dependent the American economy is on truck drivers. According to the American Truck Driver Association, 
there are 3.5 million professional truck drivers in the U.S., and an additional 5.2 million people employed within the truck driving industry who don't drive trucks, that's 8.7 million trucking-related jobs. Just aside here for a second, um, Walmart is the largest employer in the United States and employs about 1.5 million people. A lot of them truck drivers, by the way. I'm just saying, though, that's 8.7 million. Okay, um, That's like four Walmarts, roughly. Four Walmarts of employees. And most of the people in the trucking industry probably paid better than people in Walmart. Those are pretty decent. They're not great paying jobs, but they're pretty decent paying jobs. Uh, we'll go back to the article. We can't stop there, though, because the incomes received by these 8.2 million people create the jobs of others. Those 3.5 million truck drivers driving all over the country stop regularly to eat, drink, rest, and sleep. Entire businesses have been built around serving their wants and needs. Think restaurants and motels are just two examples. So now we're talking about millions or more whose employment depends on the employment of truck drivers, but we still can't stop there. Those working in these restaurants and motels, along with truck driving routes, are also consumers within their own economies. And it keeps going, as though they're the first people to ever figure out that if a major sector falls, that there's all these other sectors that result in jobs supporting those sectors, and then those jobs support sectors, so that if you if you take out something like a million jobs out of the country in one sector, it has a cascading effect that goes down through. So this is a perfect example of somebody that you know probably just completed college and thinks this is an original thought even though it's not an original thought at all, that anybody with a basic working understanding of economics would understand this. And it's a very, very, very long article, including a video that shows a truck driving itself. Uh, these trucks are already here. And then a, a, a kind of a projection that says we're really looking at like 2020 to 2030 being the years of transition where more and more of these autonomous vehicles take over and start driving. Now, I think it's going to be a lot more along the lines of, if you think about a, a, an airplane being flown by autopilot, there's still a pilot sitting there for quite a long period of time before you really see trucks driving themselves. That will prove it out, meaning the truck drivers will be entrusted with, you know, seeing to their own demise. There's also some other things that are going to hold this back. Uh, the article makes a lot about government being in the way, though I get that these people are pretty pro-government people, but it's just big business government that see that. It's like because there's other parts of government that aren't big business, whatever. Anyway, um, here, but it doesn't really mention unions much at all. Well, I think unions are going to have a big problem with this. I mean, why is it that in Texas... There's almost no people left working in a toll booth. But there's still plenty of people working in toll booths in New Jersey. I know they have speed pass in all of New Jersey now, and there's a lot less toll workers, but are there really less, or are they just letting some of them retire without being replaced? Because last time I was on the Garden State Parkway, there were still people in those buildings taking money. And now in Texas... If you're driving down the road and you go on a lot of the toll roads here, if you don't have Easy Pass, is what they call it here, or another state that works with Easy Pass that says, here's your toll, then you just get your license plate, they take a picture of it, and they mail you a bill. They send you a bill in the mail, and if you don't pay it, you get you know your hand slapped or whatever. And some people are never going to pay because they're out of state, and they don't give a damn, and they know there's nothing you can do about it, and they get away with five bucks worth of tolls, but the state is ahead. Because they're not paying. So the the toll booths are a the canary here, right? Before you have a truck driving itself, you got to have a toll system that doesn't need a, a person. And, and if you go to all the big union states, you see this protectionist attitude 
holding back progress. And what else can't you do in New Jersey? How about pump your own gas? Yep. Can't pump your own gas in New Jersey, and the reason is it'll cost jobs. As though some people exist growing up hoping that someday, just someday, I can pump gas. A job that I did when I was eight years old, by the way. That's, that's how much cognitive capability you need to be able to effectively pump gas for people is the intelligence of an eight-year-old. Um, you don't really need people pumping gas, and 48 other states have shown that that's completely unnecessary. And what you found really quick when self-service started to come around, that people started avoiding the full-service line. Not just because it was a couple pennies more a gallon, because they just didn't want to be bothered. They wanted to do it for themselves. Right? They just did like, it's much easier if I come here and I'm not bothered. And by the way, I've got so much going on in my life to stop for five minutes and let the pump run and, 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 and step out of the car is not a bad thing. So yeah, I mean, people today would rather pump their own gas. So if, if we can't even skin in New Jersey pumping our own gas, it's a long time before this really takes over. But, The whole point of this article is because of this. We need to start this basic income. So there's this, and this is just another, this is an example of what you call perception bias. Since the author clearly believes in this concept, then they'll use anything they can to justify selling it to you. The concept of basic income is that, as an American citizen, you should have a minimum wage for existing. Oh, by the way, if you're an illegal alien, you probably should get it too, and everybody else should get it. It's just like you should get enough money every month to pay for basic housing, basic you know services, and basic food. Like you should get like a an existence allowance. Here's some money. Go off and and here's the problem with that. Number one, we can't just like do that. We just can't like just make money and do that because it's called inflation. And and the solution is always we'll tax the rich. Well, the rich don't and are never going to pay taxes. The rich don't and are never going to pay taxes. The rich do not and are never going to pay the taxes. Okay? They're not. Not the rich that could you could actually get the money to do this with from. There are the, the multi-billion dollar corporations. They don't pay taxes. Look at what GE paid in taxes last year. If you, if you, and try to figure out how you're going to give everybody 40 grand a year for existing on, on that. It's, it's not going to happen. And if you de-incentivize work to the point where I get 40 grand a year for doing nothing, then you're going to have a whole of a lot less GEs in the world. And what's going to happen is the same thing that happens with minimum wage. You're going to get that basic allowance to become a poverty line that fast. That's what will happen. A basic allowance will become a poverty line. Whatever number you set it at, that's going to become po impoverishment. So if we set it at 40, everybody gets $40,000 a year just for existing. Well, first of all, I don't even need to work then unless I'm making at least $40,000 a year. All right? And, and you know they're never just going to say, well, you get $40,000 a year. Or say, well, if you make under a certain amount, you get, like, they'll, they'll be, they'll, there's no, never, this is a pipe dream. This is nonsense. And it's never going to happen. But it brings up an interesting thing, and that is, this is just another example of, all these jobs that are going to be eliminated. And you have to start realizing that we're going to have to start becoming more intelligent individuals to exist in a more intelligent society. Entry-level employment is going to get more sophisticated. And we have a lot of opportunity in a lot of places for people to do something with their time, productive, But these like guaranteed jobs are going away. And that's what they're trying to do is take like because here's the reality. 
And I don't know if it's as true today as it was 20 years ago, but it's still true to a, a point. If you really want a job today and you're not a felon and you're willing to work and you can show up on time, you can get a job with a guaranteed paycheck. And and there's less in that. That's dwindling. That's dwindling. When I say guaranteed paycheck, don't get me wrong. I don't mean you can go get a sixty thousand dollar job, uh, you know, guaranteed with with a, with a limited in, uh, you know education or whatever. What I mean is that if if you want to make minimum wage and you're willing to work for minimum wage, you can go get a job making minimum wage. You you can, and you can't tell me you can't, and you can get a job making a little bit more. And yes, it sucks, and it's like yes, you can barely get by on it. I understand all that. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying you can. What they're trying to point out here with this this article, and to a degree they're correct, that that's becoming less and less true. And those of us that are 40, 50 years old are having a hard time accepting that that's, that's true because we've carved out our place. And even though I'm hard on these young people sometimes, they've, they've got a point that they're like, well, you say that, but I've applied for 18 jobs in two weeks and I haven't gotten a call back. And and there's ways around that, but even those like if you're if you're that kid, I'd like applied for my first job and no one calls me back. You need to go in and talk to. I need to know when the manager's here. I need to talk to him. I need to introduce him to myself. I need to point out that I've I've applied. You need to apply and apply and apply and apply and apply and apply and apply. The ones that come with the test answer the test a little bit different every time. You can get it. You can still do it if you just want a job. You can get a job. Once you get one, you can get another one. Right. Well, that's that's dwindling is the need for people that can just show up and do whatever they're told dwindles. See, yeah, there's jobs, you know, working on the robots, but you have to know what you're doing to get that job. So we're in an interesting predicament as a society. What I would point out is it's not the first time it's ever happened. Um, when the first combine-style harvesters came out, And these were like pulled by like a horse or an ox, by the way. So you, you drove and it just and it looked a lot like a modern combine, right? We're talking about like the Edwardian era and stuff that some of this stuff came out. Um, there were workers who burned down factories, whose their, their entire existence up to that point had been you know running a scythe or something like that. Because how in the world would there ever be a job again if 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 the machine? could harvest all that. So we've evolved past this before. And I think that that's where the optimist gets too optimistic. Most of us alive have never lived through a lot of those events, though. It's, it's like, see, that's the way we look at the lens of history now, with the microwave generation, as I call it, that since everything worked out okay in the end, that it wasn't a big deal. Well, you know, in, in some ways, everything worked out for Europe pretty good after World War II. I don't know if you wanted to be there during it. I, I think that things worked out for the United States really well by the end of World War II, but that didn't help you much if you were the one of the young men over there fighting it, or a parent with six of your children in various theaters, and only two of them came home, or you only had one and he did come home but he came home and was never the same again we 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 miss all the damage that gets done in these 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 transitional stages well guys the one thing this gets right is the the computer driven truck is going to hit us like a human driven truck there there is a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth that are coming in the next 10 to 15 years and for everything bad there'll be something good but It'll be up to people to figure out how to be part of it. 
And I think we're going to see people go in two ways. Higher technology or more horticultural, agrarian, hard skills, craftsmanship things. Now, I'm going to surprise a lot of you. I don't think in our current system that the concept of a basic income can work. That doesn't mean that I don't think there couldn't be a system where a basic income could work. I do think it would require a lot of different things. A lot of different things. And one would be, there'd be a lot of things that if you did it, you no longer qualified. Like, oh, I don't know, stealing from people. Um, it would also require that you do something. I, it would require that you do something. That you make yourself available to do something. So, um, along the lines of a lot of states are now looking at things like, if you're going to be on welfare, then you need to come do 10 hours of work a week. Or you don't get any. And I think that if we came up with something more along the lines of what, what's been touted as full employment, which I think has its own problems, but something akin to that, that a person that wants a job, we will find a role for, and that that role will be a poor paying, poor benefits, but yes, it's something you can do with a hell of a lot of incentive to do more, I think that a lot of people, the reason they never become what they could become is they don't do anything at all. And they don't meet other people, they don't network, and they don't get involved, and they don't, they don't, they don't have to pull hard enough to get the little bit of what they have. I think if you remove that, we get into a problem. I think we could do this. I don't think we're ready yet. Much like as an anarchist, I believe that we could exist without a state. But when I look around me, I think there's a lot of us that aren't ready yet. So, I'm not saying it can't work. I'm saying it's moot right now because it doesn't matter. And it ain't going to happen. So, let's take another one. How about a little good news for a change? For some reason, Ecuador has come up a lot lately because they're building their own cryptocurrency. Uh, they seem like they have designs on eventually creating a virtual citizenship program. Uh, and they've always been pretty heavy on doing positive things for the environment. I think one of the reasons is because they're in an area that, that requires it and uh, they have so much to gain from it with, with ecotourism. Uh, and as a small country, anything you can gain is, is, is good and generally leads to good decisions if it, if it can. Um, but they've just broken a world record. Ecuador breaks the Guinness, Refor Guinness reforestation record. Um, Cataquila, Ecuador. Ecuador broke a world record for reforestation Saturday as thousands of people pitched in to plant 647,250 trees of more than 200 species, President Rafael Correa said. Quote, I have just been informed that we have broken the Guinness record for reforestation, the president said in his weekly address. Correa, Correa, I think it was C-O-R-R-E, Correa, I, I guess would be the way to say this man's name on my Spanish pronunciation ability, said the seedlings were planted all over Ecuador, which boasts varied geography from its Pacific coast, high Andean peaks, and low Amazon uh, basin areas. Environmental Minister uh, Lorenza Tapia said on Twitter that 44,833 people planted the trees on more than 2,000 hectares, or 4,942 acres of land. Guinness record educator Carlos Martinez said hundreds of varieties were planted as part of the mass reforestation effort. Quote, there is no record in history of similar events involving over 100 species, he told the AFP. 
Some of the volunteers who planted trees in more than 150 spots across Ecuador said while they were proud of the record, they wouldn't mind seeing it broken again. Quote, I wish everyone would beat this record, said government employee Ricardo Quireja, uh, who volunteered as a tree planter in Catequila. Boy, they're killing me with the hard to pronounce Spanish words here. I want to beat it once a month so the planet will be full of trees in very little time, which is what we need. The Philippines holds the record for the most trees planted in an hour, with 3.2 million seedlings sown last September as part of a national forestation program. Scientists believe that planting trees helps offset carbon buildup in the atmosphere as they absorb carbon dioxide and emit oxygen, helping to reduce global warming. Why, 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 why do you got to put this in everything that's environmentally sound? Ecuador holds several other world records, including the most plastic bottles recycled in one week and the most people buried in sand simultaneously. That doesn't seem to fit in there. Anyway, um, it's interesting to me that, okay, so they planted 647,000 trees, roughly, of 200 species, and that's a Guinness record for reforestation. But the Philippines planted 3.2 million seedlings in an hour. So how does that one... I'd like someone to do a little research for me, because here's what I'm thinking. I'm glad Ecuador did this, but I'm with them. I wish we would all do this. And I think we could I think we could plant more than 600,000 trees in one day in this country. And I think this community could make it happen. But do seedlings not count? Because that's how I think we could make it happen. Or do you have to have a certain number of variety? Or was maybe this was humid planted trees? Maybe, obviously, the 3.2 million seedlings in the Philippines was probably an airdrop or something. But I'm wondering, would the TSP community be interested in taking on, and probably not till next year or the year after, uh, the idea of let's beat Ecuador at their own game? Let's plant a million trees in a day in this country. Can it be done? I think there's no doubt that it could be done. I mean, if you can plant little trees, one person planting 100 trees in a day is not that difficult. It's really not. If you can plant little trees and find a place to put them, if we just look at the thousand Permaethos founders all doing a hundred at two dollars a tree, investing two hundred bucks in a day of their time, that's that's a hundred thousand trees right there. That's ten percent from one subgroup of this community. I'm not ready to take this on full head, full bore yet. But it'd be interesting if someone could find out for me what what makes these two different. Like what was done in the Philippines versus what was done in Ecuador and Maybe some of you guys start kind of hooking up with the idea of how do we how do we go forward with this? One million trees in one day in the United States of America. What would that mean for our future? We need to be doing something meaningful. We really do. Instead of sitting around bitching about trucks that drive themselves, maybe we need to fix a lot of the damage that's done uh, in, in this country. And I just bet we could find places to put them. I just bet we could find places to put them. I'm just just saying. That would be interesting. Anyway, um, maybe somebody starts a forum thread on this or something. I, I don't know. Uh, but I'd like to uh, to get your feedback on whether or not this is something to push on. You know, and, and what if just, damn it, what if it was a million trees and most of them were in some way food-producing trees or at least productive trees in one capacity or another? I'm just saying. Uh, let's take another one. On the note of uh, conservation technology, uh, Steve Harris, who is a whiz with numbers, uh, did some calculations, and this is what he said to me. 
Jack, I was amazed that you said you had captured and used 250,000 gallons of water. And I started to think of how much that would cost if you irrigated that much water from your well. If your well flow rate with restrictions of pipes is 10 gallons a minute, your well and your well is only at 1.5 kilowatts, because it's easy to be two to three times this, and your electricity is 10 cents a kilowatt, that number's about dead on, by the way, then it would take 17 days for your well to pump that much water, 24-7, and would cost $62.50. Consider if you had a 4.5 kilowatt water pump, many wells in Texas are deep, this could cost as much as $187 in electricity. Uh, this can be two times more for someone in California because of the electricity cost. Uh, so in California, this would cost $468. Swells can be a very fast ROI. I, I agree, and I think there's a lot of things that maybe make this even more impressive if we start looking at it. So the first thing is that this is a three-quarter acre piece of land. And that that was for 10 events this spring so far. And then the next thing to consider is you're probably looking at about 5,000 gallons of water being infiltrated before the swells hold any. Okay, and that means like for like the first 5,000 that goes into them, they don't really, unless it's already really wet, they don't really fill up. So it's really 30,000 gallons. And then it's not really used water. It's infiltrated into the earth. So it's down there for the plants to use if they need it, but we're recharging the aquifers. So instead of draining the aquifer by 250,000 gallons, You know, I probably, of the 250, I probably put 200 back into it. Which means now I can run my well for 17 days, 24-7, 365, before I've taken anything out of the aquifer. And that's a totally different way to look at the conservation of a resource. And what if everybody was doing this? Now there's another way to look at it. I rented a machine that cost me under $1,000 for a week to do the job. I actually did the job in one day. Um, that machine, in a less complicated design, could put in ten times what it did that day, especially considering my operator was new to this and it was his first time ever digging swales ever. And by the time he dug that last swale, he was like... I mean, he was cranking it. Absolutely cranking it. Or that when we went out and did the Alcoa uh, project recently, we put in miles of swale in a day. Miles. Miles with a D6. Great swales. They're not as pretty as you do with an excavator, but they do the same job. And you start to realize that if that water goes into the ground system and actually reforests things that... You know, maybe planting a million trees isn't that complicated after all if it was done the right way in the right place. I'm just saying. And they, you might look at that number and go, well, that's 187 bucks, right? I mean, that's, that's Steve's really his best calculation, I think, is about $180 is what it would cost me in power to pump that much water based on my pump and its size and everything. But here's the other thing. What, what are you doing to a well pump when you run it for 24 hours a day? For 17 days. They're not designed to do that. This isn't a windmill pump. Right? This is an electric pump. This thing's not meant to just... Non-stop. When I filled up my, my swimming pool, um, it was like we ran it, got you know six to ten inches into the pool, 
shut it off for a couple hours, ran it again for, you know, six hours. And it took, like, a better part of a week to fill up our swimming pool. And, you know, because you, you, it's an older pump. You, what, is, what do you do with the life expectancy of something when you run it that hard for that long? What's that cost to replace? So not only does it work here on a small scale, but it can work bigger and faster, and there's a lot of other things that go along with this. So if I did want to spread 26,000 gallons of water effectively with an irrigation system, how much infrastructure do I have to put in, and what does that cost? The swells do it passively. How much maintenance is required? The swells are done. There's swells in the desert. They were put in during pre-World War II that are still building soil and working and growing systems that no one's touched for 80 years. No one's even touched them other than to film them for 80 years. You can see them from a satellite, the swath of green growing across the desert. Yeah, engineering-wise, one of the lowest input to long-term output systems you can ever do as a swale. And that's why some people are like, you talk about them so much. Well, when you show me something that does as much for a one-time effort, I'll talk about that a lot, too. I'm just saying. Uh, while I'm talking about Steve, he has another quick email for us this week. This might be a good thing for you guys to know about. Last week, I answered a question about growing kiwis and grapes up in trees, and I talked about using a, a cable-based system and greasing the nuts and bolts in the cabling system so that when you needed to remove it or adjust it, you didn't end up with everything rusted. And I said to use you know, a good like a lithium grease or something like that. Steve has this tip to, uh, for us from uh, a product from Dow Corning, Silicon Chemicals. He says, we've used this for decades now. It's Dow Corning number 4 compound. It's a silicon grease. He has a link to Amazon to get it. So I've seen this on a friend's nuts and bolts on his antenna tower. They were coated over 20-plus years previously with no added grease, and the nuts and bolts came off after 20 years like they were put on yesterday. The stuff is that get good. Unless you're in the know, then you don't know about it. Better lie through chemistry, Steve. I'm going to get some of this and have it on hand to use for things like this. I, I didn't know about this, uh, and it is available on Amazon, and I will have a link in today's show notes where you can get it for yourself. And it's not even that expensive. Five ounces of it is 20 bucks, and it doesn't sound like you need to use very much of it very often. This next one comes from Justin, and I'm going to play the audio of something for you. Um about wolves, the Yellowstone wolves. And then I'm going to come back with his comments and, and my thoughts on that. And the reason I'm going to play this is I think many of you really wouldn't even be aware of it uh, unless I did and would have to go look it up so it would be easier just to play it now. And it's really an inspirational thing that I have played on the air before, and it, it does make you think about the impacts we can have, uh, both positive and negative, and how we need to be careful about changing certain things, especially when it comes to, to nature. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. 
before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, that the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers uh, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Um, I have a certain amount of uh, pride for Justin here because I'm going to tell you about another email that I got from Justin before this one. And uh, I'm very proud when I see someone in this audience beginning to leap ahead on certain things and, and call me out on them. And uh, in a po very positive way, by the way. So I got an email from, from Justin. He said, this pattern recognition thing is, is starting to show up everywhere. Are you trying to create a trophic cascade? Is that what you're really doing with Survival Podcast? And I emailed him back. I said, you know, it really kind of is. That really is a way that you could look at it, a trophic cascade. 
And then he sent me this email, and what he said in his comments when he sent this particular email, he didn't even send the link because he knew I'd seen it. He said, I'm sure you know the story of Yellowstone's wolves. By introduce, reintroducing wolves amongst the sheep, will the same effect isn't really possible because no one else is eating the sheep, but it still can create far-reaching ramifications. Um, I do think, though, that it actually can have this big of an effect. It's not like the sheeple or the deer and then we're the wolf eating the sheep. I, I don't think so. It's more that it, it's not so much that the wolves ate the deer. It's that the deer had to start acting like deer again. Think about this. So the wolves didn't eat all the deer. The wolves didn't even have a, a monumentous impact on the deer population. There's still an awful lot of deer and elk and, and other animals that the wolves would consider prey in Yellowstone. They, they haven't suppressed the population into anything approaching a, a, a too small of a population. There's still plenty of them there. There's still probably enough of them there to have all of the ill effects of bank erosion and things like that if they're not behaving like deer. Some of you are like, I don't understand what you mean. Okay, so how have the deer been behaving in Yellowstone with the absence of the wolves and the absence of hunting for 80 years? They've been behaving like cattle. They're not afraid. They don't hide. And they browse. And they browse just on whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, with no top-level predator to make them actually behave like what they are, deer. And the reason that the sheep will behave like sheep in our society isn't because they're sheep. It's because they're behaving like what they're not. Humans are supposed to be part of this world. We are supposed to be part of nature. We are a natural species like every other species out there. We're just living way out of balance. We have a role to play in the environment. We have a role to play in each other's lives. We are as native a species to this planet as any other species that's here. We're as native as the species all the eco-weenies want to protect. And not that they're wrong for wanting to protect it, but they, you know, like they, to the exclusion of human beings, like the, the jaguar. The jaguar is so majestic. Well, we're just as native to this place as the jaguar. We're just as native to this place as every other being on this planet. And indeed, trophic cascade is what I'm looking to cause to happen. By reawakening people to their natural wild states, to having them simply be what they are, real human beings living real, meaningful lives, really impacting things for the positive, which is what we're supposed to do, you create a cascade through society. You change people that never even knew you were there. The river doesn't know why it's, it's behaving the way that the river is supposed to and not eating out and eroding the banks. The river just does what the river does. And I think many of the people in our society could do that. That indeed, Trophic Cascade is an incredible way to see the work that we do at Survival Podcast. By making small incremental changes to ourselves in the way that we live, by being examples of what liberty is supposed to be, rather than trying to force other people to understand liberty in our way, we spread liberty. Justin went a little bit further than that, though, without realizing it, I don't think. Not only is it a trophic cascade, but indeed, being the wolf is exactly what I've advocated. In fact, there's even an episode of Survival Podcast called, guess what? Be the wolf. 
And it is that trophic cascade that I'm looking for. And it's not exactly the word that I would have used to describe it myself, but as soon as I heard it, I went, that's exactly what I'm doing, and I'm doing it intentionally. And I really do have just this incredible feeling of joy when I hear one of my listeners throw something like that at me that I, I thought I was doing as part of my evil plat to take over the world, uh, and nobody noticed, and they're like, yeah, dude, I see it. I see what you're up to. And that's, that's what we're doing here. And I want as many of them as possible for the positive. I want to plant a million trees. I want to incentivize hundreds, if not thousands, of people to start their own business. I, I, I want good things for everybody willing to work for them. That That's what I really want. And I want more people to be willing to work for them. And I, I, I don't think there's any solutions left in government. I think, you know, what solutions government had to offer, it's done, and it's gone way past its usefulness at this point. And it, it's been nothing but a monstrous downhill ride ever since. Most of the p things that people would point to and go, see, government did some good here. Well, the government screwed it up first. I, I think we're past that. I think we're past the point of being able to force our will on others, and we need to return to true innate human behavior, which I think a lot of people are afraid of. Like, humans are evil. No, humans aren't evil. Humans are what humans are. We're a native species to this planet. And we've managed to coexist fairly well with, with, with the planet for the majority of our existence. Some Things we've screwed up here and there, but we haven't really screwed things up badly in the last couple hundred years. Well, it's time for us to return to what we really are and create that trophic cascade and be the wolf. Nice one, Justin. Let's take another one. Kind of doing a 180 here and getting back to where bad things happen because people do things that are not innately human things to do. Chicago faces a $2.2 billion bank payout after ratings are cut to junk on Yahoo Finance. Bloomberg by Daryl Preston, May 13th, 2015. Just a few days ago. Chicago may have to pay banks as much as $2.2 billion after Moody's Investors Service dropped its credit rating to junk, deepening the fiscal crisis in the third largest U.S. city. The company's decision Tuesday to cut Chicago's $8.1 billion of general obligations to ranks to BA1, one step below investment grade, allows banks to demand that the city repay debt early and exposes it to fees and end swaps contracts. Moody said in a statement, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, Barclays PLC, and Wells Fargo and Company are among the city's bankers. The downgrade adds to the financial pressure on Chicago, which was already the lowest rated of any big U.S. city except for Detroit. It follows as Illinois Supreme Court ruling last week that safeguards retirement benefits, casting doubt on Chicago's ability to curb $20 billion in pension fund shortfall. More from Bloomberg.com. Uh, anyway, you can, you can read the rest of this if you want to. Um, I, here's ba the basic non-bullshit version of what's gone on here. So Chicago has committed more money than it has to paying retirement benefits. And then said, but we may not be able to pay all the retirement benefits. We may have to use the money for other stuff like to continue to exist. And the Illinois Supreme Court came down and said, no, 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 thou shalt not do that. Thou shalt pay thy retirees thy retirement bonuses, uh, benefits that thou hast agreed to in thy contract with them. And Chicago says, well, we just might not have it then. 
So Moody's turns around and, you know, who, who rates the creditworthiness and says this is basically now a junk bond. This is the bottom of the bond market now. Like if you're investing here, you're, you're, you're throwing a bit of a Hail Mary now, investors. It, it might pay off really big because they might have to pay you more interest to get you to do it, but this is crap. This is a, this is a crappy investment. That's what junk means, right? Junk is crap. Now the banks that loaned a lot of the money in the first place, not all the people that they owe money to, but the banks under this system now are, are able to demand the money that they already say they don't have faster and to take additional fees so the banks get to breach their part of the contract, say we want the money now and we want additional fees even though we get our money faster. And the banks in question are J.P. Morgan Chase and Barclays and Wells and Fargo. And you can bet there's a whole bunch of Goldman Sachs running around in between there. So what does this mean? Well, this means that the banks don't lose, that the retirees and the people of Chicago lose, and that the other bondholders lose. See, it, it's it, listen to this, it's $2.2 billion. Uh, of 8.1 billion. So what about the other six-ish billion? Those people get hosed. Why? Because the whole system was set up by the bankers in the first place. That own you. They own you. They own you. They own your elected officials. They own your city. They own your city government. They own you. They own you. They own you. Do you get it now? They own you. Even when they lose, they win. They own you. When, when there's a, when there's a uh, foreclosure, it's on you. They own you. They own you. They own you. They own your ass. They own your children. They own your grandchildren. They own your yet-to-be-born great and great-great-great-grandchildren until such time as we stop behaving this way. And what does this have to do with not being innately human? No human being would ever agree to this if they knew what they were agreeing to. We've tacitly agreed to it by my not paying attention to it. If I came to you and said, here's the deal, right? Okay, what we're going to do is the, the city you live in, we're going to give them a whole bunch of money to buy a whole bunch of stuff, and then they're going to have to tax you to get the money back, but they can never hope to tax you enough to get all the money back. Then we're going to vest your retirement as a worker for the city in this thing that's going to fail. But we're going to make sure that the big companies that make the most money off of doing this can never lose and everybody else does. You would agree to that. That's how every big city's financial situation can be described in, in a few short sentences right now. This is the future of every major city in America. And oh, those of you like, in the South, we have it figured out, and we have right to work, and this stuff doesn't happen. This is the future of Houston. This is the future of Dallas. This is the future of Fort Worth, just in my own state. This is the future of Atlanta. This is the future of Jacksonville. This is the future of Tallahassee. This is the future, well, this is the present of Detroit. Right. This is the, the, the soon-to-be president of Chicago. This is the future of Philadelphia. This is the future of Los Angeles. Pick a major city. This is what's coming to everybody. None of them can hope to permanently fix this problem without completely altering it. And the solution is to return to behaving like logical human beings. You don't enter into deals with people who can't lose, but you can. Think about that. How 
dumb do you have to be to take Here's the deal. I'm going to come to you and make you a deal. Don't worry about the details. This is the, the summation of the deal. No matter what happens, I'm going to do well during the deal. Okay? You're going to do okay when I decide that you're going to do okay. And sometimes you're going to do better or worse based on my decisions because I'm in control of the deal. Additionally, sooner or later, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And I won't lose anything and you'll lose everything. And it might be that it's your children that actually take it on the chin with this, but there's no way out of it. There's no way I'm ever losing, and there's no way you're ever winning in the end. This is a losing deal, but you'll be okay for a while. Unless you're about to die, you're probably not taking that deal. And even if you're being rational, even if you're about to die, what I mean by about to die is like this will prevent you from dying, not you're terminally ill, right? Though, do remember, we all have a terminal illness called life. Keep that in mind when you're making decisions about what to do in your life. But unless this is like some kind of deal like, okay, if you're going to do I'm going to pay for your chemo, and you're going to beat cancer because of it, you know, you might be desperate to make that deal then. But if I offered you that deal under any kind of normal pretenses, you'd never do it. Well, see, somebody made the deal for you. Because the people that made the deal knew they wouldn't be there when the, when the check came due. The people that made the deal are the politicians that have all of their retirement worked out in a totally different basket. So now here's the deal. I'm going to act on your behalf. I'm going to make the deal with the evil jerks, the banks. I'm going to make a deal that you're going to lose in the end, that you'll do better or worse based on what we decide during the deal, and that the bank will never lose. From the deal, I'm going to take my house cut. I'm going to put it in another basket over here that you're not allowed to touch or question that's going to fully take care of me and my family for the rest of our existence, and you get the shitty end of the deal, do you want that deal? Does that sound better? That's the deal. That's the deal that's been made by every major city in America. In conjunction with these banks. And in conjunction with the giant brokerages like Goldman Sachs. So, how do we fix it? You can't fix this system. This is like, how do you fix roulette so that it's, it's so that it pays everybody well? <laughs> Think about that, right? How do we make a roulette wheel pay well for everyone? Well, you, you can't. You can't. You can fix it where no one loses. You could actually make a roulette wheel that no one loses on, right? All the, the only, there's only one color. It's red. There's no numbers. And it's a it's a it's it's a break even bet. You put your two dollars up on red. Red hits, you get your two dollars back. But you can't. No one can win at a roulette game like that. And we can't make a roulette wheel that has a payout to everyone. Because for somebody to get a payout, the money has to come from somewhere, and that comes from the losers. Well, in this game of roulette. There is only one number, there is only one color, and you're not allowed to play that number or color. You get some free drinks while the game goes on, but you never win, and they never lose. And yes, the politicians are the house. They get their little piece of the action. They get to wet their beak a little bit, for those of you who know where's that come from, right? right? They get to wet their beak, they get to see to themselves, there's plenty to skim there, and you lose. So we have to change the system. And we're not going to anytime soon. So since we're not going to change the system anytime soon, 
You have to be smarter than that system, and you have to figure out how to exist without it being your your mainstay of hope. And some of you that have retirements coming from some of these cities will get some of it. Some of you will get all of it, depending on your age and what city it is. And some of you ain't going to get anything. And those of you that are part of unions, and you, they, we're going to make them pay us, and it's like, yeah, good luck with that. See, you're going to go to, so let's say if you're a, a Chicago, city of Chicago employee that ends up on the short end of this stick, and you go sue Chicago for money, well, the people you should be suing for money are J.P. Morgan Chase. Good luck with that. Since they write the legislation, since they write the bills, since they've already set up a system that makes them not culpable for your loss, good luck with that. This is what happens when we start behaving out of balance with what we are and not follow logic anymore. See, there's a reason. See, we're the, we're the only being on this planet that actually has logic as a function of our psyche. There's a lot of other creatures that exhibit a higher level of intelligence than, than we would normally really think they would have. Dogs are far more intelligent than people that have never worked with dogs realize. Or, or, or dolphins, or whales, or primates have a, a certain level of intelligence that's actually really impressive if you look at it and examine it. But they have two things they don't have. One, they never ask why. That's what actually separates us from all the other animals on the planet. They, we, we ask why. If you give us a, a, a task to complete, and we've learned the task, and then all of a sudden it starts to fail... We used to be able to balance a block, and now it falls over because the researcher trimmed off an edge of it so it won't balance anymore. We examine it and start trying to figure out what went wrong. A monkey trained to do that same task, I saw this on a, a scientific you know, documentary, just keeps trying to balance it and finally gives up. Never, never tries to figure out why it doesn't work anymore. And that leads to logic. So we are innately logical as beings because we ask why and seek the answer. The problem happens when we start saying, now how do I use this against those who are less critical thinkers than me? Instead of how do I do the best I can with what I have? This is where we go out of balance. And we get entire populations of millions of people to behave completely irrationally and then actually seem surprised when it doesn't work out. In, in, in no short order... The deal that was offered to the American people was the banks will win, the politicians will win, and you will lose, and the people took the deal. And then they're shocked when it works out the way that the deal was written. Think about it this way. When you enter into a contract, and elections are contracts, okay, banking agreements and code and, and legislation, etc., all of those things are contracts, They call them grand public contracts, for instance, right? So they're the, the grand public deal. What part did you play in writing that contract that binds you equally to all other human beings? None. The person that writes the contract always controls the end and exit clauses of the contract, it's almost always a mistake that if another party writes a contract and presents it to you, that you, without any consideration or alteration, just sign the contract and say, yeah, whatever you say is fine. You have to be doing business with a very trustworthy and benevolent individual or trustworthy and benevolent agency 
to ever trust the contract is drafted by the other party. It's almost always the case that when intelligent people do business, that somebody on the other end says, hey, I want to change this provision, or this doesn't seem right to me, or that doesn't seem to fit our particular instance right now, and wants an alteration or a change. Okay? Yeah? You didn't get to do any of that shit. <laughs> somebody else wrote the contract, somebody else signed the contract, and bound you to it. And... <laughs> And you know that, and you're still surprised that it doesn't work out to your benefit if you're the average person in America today. The average person is actually surprised by this. You're probably not. Because you realize that you are bound by contracts you didn't sign, and there's only so much you can do about that, but you need to go out and create some of your own opportunities, right? That's innately human. From the time we first started to actually ask why and to actually develop as a, as, as a society and as communities and tribes and eventually nations and, and groups and regions, things have gone wrong. The survivors are always the ones that have adapted and created their own opportunities to go forward. It's innately human. That's all I'm saying. If you've been listening to this show for any length of time as well, you know it's no surprise because municipal defaults has been something that I've been talking about since, oh, 2009, oh, I'd say really 2008. Uh, by fall of 2008, I was telling you that one of our biggest risks going forward were municipal defaults. This is what they look like. And the thing is, they haven't even defaulted yet. Do you understand that? Chicago hasn't defaulted on anything. This is the rating agency... <laughs> has decided that eventually they will and noted that in their rating. And, you know, it, who, <laughs> who benefits, right? What was the history segment today? Who benefits? Who benefits from this? The city of Chicago? No. The taxpayers funding the city of Chicago? No. The residents of the city of Chicago? No. The banks? The banks get to the front of the line, they get their money first, and they get more money than they're due. And everybody else loses. All because the ratings institution pointed to the truth, yes, but chose to do so now, at this time, this way. Who do you think runs the rating institutions? Really? You think they're just like this autonomous thing that exists outside of the sphere of financial banking influence and brokerage? Really? You believe that? I got a bridge to sell you. Let's take another one. Let's go to something totally different here for a final question. It says, hey, Jack, is there a caliber of ammunition which crosses over from handgun and pistol to rifle? I would like to have a shooting system that uses one caliber to do mostly everything from self-defense to hunting deer within a handgun and rifle. I know some lever action rifles fire .357, 45, etc. Do you have any thoughts on this or want to shoot this over to an expert council member? Mark, I'll take this one. There's actually a very old episode of TSP I'll put a link to called the Pistol Caliber Carbine where I talk about a variety of ways that this can work out. And there's really three that sort of kind of fill the niche pretty well. Um... And one is going to be one you wouldn't normally think of. 357 Magnum and um, the 44 Magnum are your two that are best suited, that are well known. And the last one, with the right ammunition, is actually 40 Smith and Wesson, but it's only available in one carbine that I know of. And it does something in that carbine that's kind of unique. Uh, not really unique, kind of just not really thought about. 
And what it basically does at that point is perform like a 10 millimeter. And I would actually say your 10 millimeter would be the optimum if there was a carbine that was made in 10 millimeter. But that doesn't exist either. So really, you're looking at your lever actions in 357 and 44 Magnum. 45 is okay, but the 44 is superior to it unless you're doing really high-level hand-loading and you really know what you're doing. And it's still, I think, the 44 is superior because of off-the-shelf ammunition options and things like that. Probably the most practical is the 357 Magnum. Um, now, I don't know of any auto-loading 357 Magnums. I know of, of, of other things that perform at the same level, but they don't have carbines to go into. Um, but there are reasonably sized, effective, 357 Magnum handguns that can be carried for personal defense. They do exist. Um, they're, I prefer a semi-auto handgun for self-defense, but I don't want to get shot with any of them, and I damn sure don't want to take a 357 Magnum in the chest. And you talk all about loading drills and one-handed cycling and, and whatever. Revolvers work. They're effective, and they're reliable, And in most instances, if you haven't solved a problem with six shots, you're probably dead anyway. We are not Navy SEALs. We are not doing tactical entry. I'm all fine with all those levels of training. I think there's a lot of value in it. I think it makes us more likely to function well in the real-world situations we are going to get into. But we are not clearing houses, and we're not going to be clearing houses that we're not familiar with. You know, if we, I'm not talking about like somebody breaking your house and, and, and having to figure out what's going on. I'm talking about, you know, Buddy ready, buddy moving stuff out in the field like you do in the military. I'm talking about SWAT entry in the house. We're not doing any of that shit. In the real world, we're not. And those of you that think it's going to happen someday when the Illuminati come with blue helmets, you're, you're smoking crack, right? So it's not what I would choose, but it will work. And there's some good, specifically shorter-barreled, hammerless 357 Magnums, titanium frame. They are a beast with recoil, but you can practice with 38s, and when you're using it in a real-world situation, you ain't going to notice the recoil, trust me. You know that just from hunting, if you've ever fire, fired some of the heavier, heavier recoiling centerfire rifles uh, that maybe beat you up a little bit on the bench and you shoot a deer with it, you don't even notice it. So you know you're not going to notice it. So it ain't going to matter anyway. You're going to do the job and get it done. Or you're not, no matter what you're carrying. So that would be my probably my best pick for you because 44 Magnum doesn't really have the compact, easy to carry handgun option that, that the 357 does in frame sizes and things like that. Here's where the 40 Smith and Weston can work. There are a lot, and I mean a lot, of really great options for that caliber from many different manufacturers. Um, from Glocks to XD to you name it, to some that people would say are not that great at guns, some that people would say are good, but there's a lot of options. And it's almost impossible that you couldn't find a gun that you would be comfortable carrying in that caliber. If you then wanted to use, I know people are going, you can't use that to shoot a deer, Jack. That just doesn't make sense. It doesn't have the knockdown power and blah, blah, blah. Well, hold on. The 10 millimeter does. Um, the 10 millimeter has been used in handguns to take some very large game. It is not 
quite on par with the 44 Magnum, but it's a step up from the 357, and it's pretty damn close ballistically to the 41 Magnum. It's not quite there, but it's somewhere between 357 Magnum and the 41 Magnum. In other words, it is effective at deer size and larger game. Ted uh, Nugent shot a Cape Buffalo with one. Okay, so it will do the job, but that's not what a 40 Smith & Wesson is. When you put it in a 16-inch barrel, Keltec Sub-2K, it is ballistically identical to a 10-millimeter out of a 4- or 5-inch barreled handgun. There's that much gain in velocity and therefore that much corresponding gain in energy. Finding a load with the proper bullet might be a little more difficult, but it could be done. Those would be your three. Here's what I think about the whole idea, though. It's a terrible, 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 terrible idea. I have a 357 Magnum rifle. I have a 44 Magnum rifle. I love them both. I have handguns for the same calibers. I love them. I like to shoot them, etc. I don't carry any of those guns as my go-to hunting rifle, and I don't carry a, a, a single handgun in one of those calibers as a primary ca carry caliber for defense because there's things that are better for them. There is no real case that can be made for trying to find one round to do two totally different things that really make sense. A 30-30 rifle is a better hunting rifle than a 357 Magnum rifle. Period. In most instances, it would be far superior than a 44 Magnum. Though there are, I have a 44 lever action rifle. That there are places I would go hunt deer, it would be the first thing I would pick up. Heavy woods, not going to have a shot over 100 yards. Boy, it's hard to beat. But a 306 will work well there too, and it'll work in a 300 yard shot in the plains. I can buy a good used Savage Model 10 in 308 for about 250 bucks at a gun show. I can't buy a new 1895 Marlin and 44 Magnum for that price. I can get a better tool for big game hunting for less money. I can buy an awful lot of ammunition, an awful lot of ammunition, for not very much money for that 308. And I can turn around and buy myself a traded-in 40 Smith & Wesson and Glock. Law enforcement return. I can get a good deal. I can get those for a couple hundred bucks under what a brand new one costs. And most of them are never hardly even used. They come with the same warranty. Where I can buy a 9mm, I prefer a 45. I mean, there's a lot of options there. But there's no real financial savings to this. It's just like I can say I have one bullet that does everything. And I'm not even going to carry the same ammunition. Oh, yeah, the 357 Magnum in my... My, my titanium-framed revolver that has five, not six shots to make it carry better, okay? Oh, yeah, it, it, it's the same cartridge that would go in in my H&R NEF single-shot handy rifle in 357 Magnum. But I'm, not, I'm probably not carrying 158-grain flat-point HTPs in my self-defense handgun. Why would I? 
I mean, they'll work, but they're not the best tool for the job. They're not optimized for the velocity out of a two to four inch barrel. They're not optimized for knockdown power on humans that want me dead. They're optimized for thick-skinned, heavy-boned animals pushing the limits of the caliber at the higher velocities out of an 18 to 22 inch barrel. That's what that bullet is for. So if I'm going to load two totally different loads for two totally different purposes, because I want a lighter grain hollow point, rapidly expanding energy dumping round in my self-defense round, why don't I just carry two different rounds to begin with? So I think this is a fun thought experiment, and I like the concept for hobbyist applications. When it comes to having the best round to make sure that if I am trying to feed my family this month, or if I take the time to go on a once-of-a-lifetime hunt for moose or elk, I want a tool for the job. I want a center-fire rifle. I want something that's going to put the animal down. And I want when I look out and it's 175 yards to not be going, I'm not sure about this, or when it's 250 yards to not be going, it just can't happen. If I'm hunting a place where that's normal, I want to be able to make that shot. And if I'm in a situation where my life and the life of others is, is in danger, even though what I said is true, if you can't get it done in five or six shots, you're probably dead anyway, you're not necessarily dead anyway. And I want that ability to reload. I want that ability to have more shots. I want that weapon that performs at a higher level. And I want it to be purpose-made and designed to be carried. And the flat reality is that most semi-autos, because of the way the weapon is designed, carries to the body far better, especially for concealed carry, than most revolvers. I don't have anything against somebody that carries a revolver for defense, but I don't. And it's not what I would recommend. So I think the idea is one of those novelties that's fun to play around with. When it comes down to the real world, use the right tool for the right job. Sure, I can drive a nail into a wall with the back of a pipe wrench. But if I have a hammer, I use a hammer for that. And I'll probably be better off for it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Shut up.